you all could please stand with me in honor of reading God's word. Today's passage is going to come from Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? And I forgive him, as many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold, with his wife and children and all that he had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave the debt. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. And he refused and went and had him put in prison till he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. They went and reported to their master all that had taken place. But his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. You guys can take a seat. We've got a storm of flies up here. We'll see how that goes. Let me pray. Lord, as we read your words here and as we're challenged by um, as we're challenged by your words challenged by the forgiveness that you have delivered to us and what that means for us now as we relate to one another. I pray that you would soften our hearts by your spirit through the reality of your sacrifice for us. Lord, I pray that you would soften our hearts to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who have also been forgiven. I pray that we would not hold each other accountable in a way that that you don't hold us accountable anymore. I pray all this in your name. Amen. As we wrap up uh, Matthew 18 and we wrap up this series on conflict in the church, I think we will hit on this morning the most crucial aspect for us. There's a lot of reasons that church conflicts happen. There's a lot of reasons that we get into conflict with one another, even as believers. Uh, you know, we, we kind of expect it because we're all still sinful, right? And we all uh, have Uh, deficiencies in our knowledge and deficiencies in our interpersonal skills. I mean, other than me, my interpersonal skills are, you know, top notch. I'm sure you've all, you know, been a part of that. Um, But 
we'll just imagine hypothetically that they're not for a second and say that sometimes we get crossways with one another, we get in conflict. And so one of the most important, I think the most crucial aspect of conflict in the church is exactly what we're going to talk about this morning and what Jesus is talking about in our passage, and that is forgiveness. With all the reasons conflict originates in the church, and there's a lot, typically, typically what I've seen is the only time they go nuclear is when we don't forgive. When we refuse to truly and biblically forgive one another. Now, there are a few things there are, there are very few things that Christians hold more dear to themselves, right, to, to what it means to be a Christian than forgiveness, right? Most would say that it's forgiveness is at the very heart of the gospel. It's at the very heart of what Christ has done for us. It's at the very heart of the Christian life. It's the greatest gift that God has given us. But most Christians would struggle to define forgiveness biblically. Choosing instead to mix the world's definition with some quotes that they happen to remember from the Bible. Most Christians, in reality, unfortunately, struggle to actually forgive others. Let me ask you don't answer this out loud. This is rhetorical, right? I was at a church one time and there was a lady that answered every rhetorical question out loud during the sermon. It was awesome, by the way, but don't do that. Have you not struggled to forgive? Have you not struggled to forgive at some point in your life? Ask yourself, are you struggling to forgive someone right now? Are you struggling to forgive someone who is a fellow believer in Christ, who is also equally forgiven by Christ's sacrifice on the cross as you are? And I wonder, are we taking it for granted that we actually understand what forgiveness is biblically? Do you take that for granted? Have we, have we said that word so often that you figure, oh, I just know what that means. Yes, forgiveness. How well can we believe in and depend on God's forgiveness for our eternal salvation if we don't understand it rightly? How well can we forgive others if we don't understand well how we have actually been forgiven? How can we live out of the reality of God's forgiveness if we take it for granted that we know what God's word means when it says forgiveness. Are we actually forgiven? Listen, are we actually forgiven if we refuse to forgive a fellow believer? You see, I think at times we are taking the world's definition of forgiveness and we are importing it into the Bible rather than taking the Bible's definition of forgiveness and exporting it into our lives as Christians. Hmm, Jesus says, Jesus said that the world would know him 
that the world would know Jesus by the way that his disciples love one another. And I can't think of any better example of Christ's love than that we would forgive one another. And so now wonder, our world is so lost as to who Jesus actually is and what he actually said. Because we're so poor at forgiving one another. Am I being a little bit spunky enough for you this morning? I'm intending to be because I believe that Jesus is being a little spunky with Peter here. So this morning, I want to examine this parable, and I want to give you a series of principles from the parable, right? Things that we can pull out of this story that Jesus tells to illustrate the point that he wants to illustrate. And then I want to give you a biblical definition for forgiveness. As best as I know, it's not my definition. I stole it from someone else because I can't make up a better definition than, than they had. So I just took theirs. And so. And then I want to quickly address some common forgiveness myths based on that definition. So can we do that this morning? It's going to be a little bit quick hitting. If you're a note taker, your hand might be sore. I'm sorry. Uh, but that's what we're going to do. So as Matthew tells us, Jesus' guidance on how the church and as it, how, how individual Christians, as it, how individual uh, or how the corporate body, I should say, are to handle members who are in sin, that's what we talked about last week, that if they repent, then you restore them to the church. And if they refuse to repent, uh, you, you know, you grow that circle of people who are in on that situation and implore them to repentance and until you have to determine that they must not be a believer because they refuse to repent. And yet, it turns here in the conversation to what do you do when they do repent? How do you respond? By forgiving them, by, by restoring them back into the community. And so now we need to kind of talk about what forgiveness is. And so that's where the conversation turns. And Peter classically helps us with that transition in verse 21, he comes up to Jesus and he says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? It's a valid question, right? And he suggests to Jesus as much as seven times. You see, understand, understand that Peter is probably trying to impress his rabbi Kind of the going thought amongst Jewish rabbis at the time was three times. Three times you forgive them, and on the fourth, nope, they, they should have learned their lesson. And so Peter's like, hey, I'm going to go up to seven. How about seven times, Jesus? Look how I'm doubling it up. Look how awesome I am, right? But Jesus' response is this, and it's shocking. He says, I do not say to you seven times, oh, I'm wondering if at the moment the disciples are like, oh, thank goodness, not seven times. We're going back to three. Whew. But Jesus is like, no, no, 77 times, right? 77. Now, I want you to get something here that you may, you may miss. Understand Jesus' point isn't that you count 77 times. You know, you got your tally sheets, a one, two, three, 76, 77. Oh, 78, I don't have to forgive you. You hit 78. That's not Jesus' point. The number here is symbolic. If we take it literally as 77, we literally miss the meaning of what Jesus is saying. It goes back to Genesis 4.24. 
The wording here is identical as Genesis 4.24. Remember Genesis 4.24? I'm sure you have that memorized, right? No, you don't. Okay, that's fine. Genesis 4.24, God, remember God tells Cain before that in Genesis 4, God tells Cain, hey, I'm going to protect you. You know, you send, I'm sending you out, but I'm going to protect you. But Cain doesn't trust God, and so Cain takes revenge in his own hands, right? And then Cain's descendant, kind of down the line, is uh, the bad Lamech. You remember the bad Lamech from when we were talking about Genesis last year? Okay. The bad Lamech takes everything that Cain is and just amplifies it to a, a thousand. He becomes this supreme manifestation of unbelief, the unbelief of Cain, and the rebellion of the seed of the serpent, right? rebellion against God. And in Genesis 4.24, Lamech, he writes this lovely poem to his wives. And in his poem to his wives that I'm sarcastically calling lovely, he says, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, Lamech's revenge is 77-fold. That's how awesome I am. If someone wrongs me, I will pay them back 77 times. And so Jesus here is playing off what Lamech said. He's saying, and as much as that is rebellion to God, this is obedience to God, that you would forgive someone who repents 77 times, meaning never ending. There is no limit. There is no quantitative limit to how often we ought to forgive someone who is repenting. Now, now, I will say there is a qualitative limit. If you don't repent, then there's not forgiveness there. So there is a qualitative boundary, if you will. But there is no quantitative limit here. It's not like, oh, well, that sin is just really egregious. I could not forgive that. No, that's not in Jesus' framework here. A Christ, Christians can forgive. Listen, Christians can forgive without limits that the world has. You want to know why? Because as a Christian, we believe that, that we are under God's protection. We trust in God's protection, and we trust in his sovereignty over the situation. The world doesn't have that. As a Christian, we trust in God's justice and his judgment and that everything will be leveled out, that every bit of justice will happen under God. The world doesn't have that. It has to seek, like Lamech, justice for itself, which is rarely actually justice. We can trust in God's vengeance and God's wrath. We don't need to take it into our own hands, desperately clinging to it like some sort of B-level Liam Neeson action flick, right? That's not who we are. It's really entertaining on the movie screen. I get it. But that's not who we are in Christ. The most significant reason, however, is expressed in Jesus' parable here. Jesus says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wishes to settle accounts with his servants. Then he began to settle. One was brought to him who owed 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and with his children and all that he had and payment to be made. Now, this particular servant, he owes 10,000 talents. I want you to understand People have studied, you know, how many, 
how much money is 10,000 talents? Like in today's world, what would that be? And, and they've come up with numbers somewhere in between 12 million to even a billion dollars. But again, I want you to understand the point here is not it, that is a literal number, okay? That's not the point. This is the highest denomination of money at the time, a talent, and the highest writable number at the time, 10,000. And just bring them together to say that this person owes an inconceivable amount of money. Like the, the most money you could think that someone could owe, this is what this person owes. That's the point of what Jesus is saying. And the master orders that the whole family be sold, that all they have be sold into slavery. But everyone who's sitting there hearing Jesus knows one thing, that will not make a dent in what this man owes. Him being sold into slavery, his wife being sold into slavery, all of his stuff being sold, all of his kids being sold, does not make a dent in 10,000 talents. It doesn't. It will never pay it off. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Everyone knows he can't do that. If he lived a hundred lifetimes, this guy can't make that much money. And out of pity for him, it says, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. This is the only possible hope that this servant had in his entire life to be out of debt under this master. And I want you to know that's the only possible hope that you have for your debt to be forgiven by God is for him to forgive you. You cannot pay it back. Not in a million years, not if you gave every single thing, every moment of your life, every dollar you make, you cannot pay it back. So, second principle, I guess I kind of just ran right through the first principle. I hope you caught that. I'm kind of going, sorry. What was the first principle? Do you remember? Christians, Christians don't stop forgiving. That's right. Yeah. I, I kind of said that. Principle two. We can't repay our debt, but the father forgave it. I want you to take note that the master didn't say this and magically 10,000 talents appeared in his wallet or in his whatever checking account. And it's like, oh, master, you're so kind. Here's $10,000 out of nowhere. No, the master willingly chose to pay that debt for him. It doesn't magically disappear. And I want you to understand with forgiveness, the debt doesn't magically disappear. When you forgive someone, you are saying, I willingly choose to take that debt on myself and pay it for you so that you don't have to. That's what you're doing when you forgive. It doesn't, it doesn't just like poof away. Third principle, forgiveness is a decision to willingly pay what someone else owes you. You see, the world says, how can I forgive them? They wronged me. How could I forgive them of that? They've wronged me so much. Do you not know, Cody, how, how much they've wronged me? How, how, how big of a debt this is, how painful it was. How could, I, how, could, how could I ever forgive them? My answer is, yeah, that's the point of forgiveness. Like, that's the point of the whole dang thing. 
Not that we overlook the offense, but that we look it square in the eyes, knowing the cost, counting it, and say, I will take that on my shoulders. I will take that in my pocketbook instead of yours. I don't need to exact this from you because I am paying it for you. So, if you bring that debt up again later, looking for some kind of payment from the other person, I want to ask you, did you actually pay that debt? And listen, this is the most, I want to, I just as a little side note, this is the most nefarious trap, I think, in Christian marriages and marriages in general that exists. It's a weapon of the enemy in our marriages that we would say that we've forgiven our spouse of X, Y, and Z, and then a month later or a year later or 10 years later down the road, and we get a new fight, and one of us says, yeah, but that one time you did. But you're always, you're always doing this just like you did back. Uh, sure, sure, I may have hurt you, but at least I didn't do that. Listen, reloading the offenses of a repentant person, of a repentant spouse whom you have forgiven and using them against them when it is convenient to you is a damnable offense. I cannot say this strong enough. It is most likely worse, a worse thing than whatever they did to you originally. And here's why. A Christian marriage is to be a picture of the relationship between Jesus and his church, right? And if I say to my wife, if I, if I forgive my wife, then later on I bring those things up. What is the picture of Christ that I am displaying here? That Christ would say to me now, oh, I forgive you, but then when I get to the pearly gates or whatever, that he's like, well, but... Right before you died, you did this, and it's just like that thing you did 10 years ago, and I know I said I forgave you for that, but I don't know now, so I, uh. What are we saying about what we believe about how Christ forgives us? If we take the offenses, the past offenses of a repentant person who we, whom we have said we forgive, and we reload them and shoot them back at that person when it's convenient for us. We are making a disgrace of the cross. So continue on with the parable. When the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Now a hundred denarii, it's not a small sum of money. It's a hundred days wages for the common labor. It's a third of your annual salary. Just put that in your mind. If you owed someone a third of your annual salary, you'd owe them a fair bit of money, I would think. But the major point here is this, it's a mere 600 thousandth of the first sum. 600 thousandth of 10,000 talents. It is a fraction of the amount. See, people, even fellow servants, even fellow Christians will sin against us. But, but here's what I want you to understand. This is our fourth principle. Debts owed to us pale in comparison to our debt to God. You say, well, 
People have done things to me that are way worse than any sin I've ever committed, Cody. Like, you don't understand what people have done to me. You don't understand what's, what my life has been like. You don't understand this thing or this offense or this hurt or this pain. You, I have never sinned against God to the level that people have sinned against me. And I say, wait, wait, hold on a second. Let's think about this. The gravity of the sin, the gravity of the offense is not only about what the offense is, but who the offense is against. If I steal a stick of bubble gum, I've stolen. If I steal your priceless family heirloom, I've also stolen. But those are two different things, right? If I punch a man in the face, that may not be the best decision. If I punch a little kid in the face, that's a different kind of offense, right? If I try to kill someone, that's not good. If I try to kill the president, you better believe everyone is going to be descending upon me, right? Who the person is matters. And when you sin against a completely, eternally, uh, inexpressibly holy God who has never sinned, then whatever sin you've done against God is a million times worse, is inexpressibly worse than any sin that anyone has done against you, period. That we would sin against the God who literally created us and sustains our every single breath in every single moment. It's far worse than anything we could do to another human being. I want you to understand that that is a point that Jesus is trying to illustrate in this Parable. Now, that, that, that shouldn't make us think of our sins against people as less, like, oh, well, it doesn't matter because it's not as bad as my sins against God. No, that's not what he's meaning to say. What he's meaning to, to amplify is as bad as that sin is against you, I want you to rightly understand that your sins against God are worse. So if it feels terrible what someone has done to you, just imagine that a, a, a zillion times more. And that's how offensive our sin is against God. And so here's the turn in the story, right? And, and he says, he seizes him and he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant, he falls down and he pleads with him, have, have patience with me, I'll pay you. And this guy could actually pay that amount, right? And he refuses and he went and he put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servant saw what had been taken place, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and they reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not, should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? What's the principle here? We should forgive as God forgives us. Ephesians 4.23, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Colossians 3.13, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. We are to forgive others as Christ has forgiven us. Our forgiveness ought to be like the forgiveness that we have received. 
But before I give you a clear definition, as well as I can do anyways, based on what we're reading here and based on the rest of Scripture, I want to give you one last concluding principle in these last few verses. And this is the principle. A refusal to forgive calls into question the reality of salvation. A refusal to forgive calls into question the reality of salvation. And I know you hear that, I'm sure, like me, and you're kind of like, wait a second, what, really? What does that mean? Look at how Jesus ends this. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you. Listen, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And Jesus spoke similarly in Matthew 6, 12. So this shouldn't be a surprise if we're reading through the book of Matthew, right? Now, I don't, I don't think that Jesus' point here is that, that I'm forgiven now, and if I later on I fail to forgive someone, then, then I lose my salvation, or God's sitting here waiting to kind of revoke my heaven past, you know, like, oh, whoops, I'll take that back, thank you very much. In the context of Peter's question, the context was how often to forgive a repentant sinner who has sinned against us, and Jesus' point is that the servant's refusal to forgive and to forgive from the heart. And I want you to understand when he says from the heart, that it's from the, the will of, of, a, of a person. It's not merely like we talk about the heart. Sometimes we talk about like feelings and that's maybe part of it, but it's not just like, oh, I feel like forgiving this person. No, it's, it's a willful decision. I've decided to do this. That's what it's talking about when it's talking about the heart. It's not merely like, oh, I'm gonna do the things I need to do out here to make it look like I've forgiven you, but I have really, truly decided to forgive you. And so Jesus' point is that the servant's refusal to forgive and to forgive from the heart actually shows that in his original interaction with the master, he was not repentant. He wasn't repentant. His heart was wrong. He showed on the outside what he ought to show, but in reality, it wasn't true. And I want you to know, or I suppose I should warn you, that if you're struggling to forgive, I wonder if whether you even know how you've been forgiven at all. I wonder if you have been forgiven. I wonder if you are actually repentant. If you actually understand the gravity of your sin, as I was describing before, against God, in such a way that your, your heart is actually repentant. And I think Jesus' point is, if you can't forgive, if, if you cannot forgive a repentant person, then you ought to ask that question and it ought to be the only question you're asking yourself until you get an answer. Because it's the only question that matters. God's forgiveness cannot be received by the unrepentant. It cannot. Just as in the matter of church discipline last week, a person can seem to be repentant for a time, but their repentance reveals itself 
eventually, when they are, uh, uh, act otherwise, so true it's here. But, but here's the bottom line I want you to get in all of this. Forgiven people forgive. It's that simple. Forgiven people forgive. If you've been forgiven, to the extent that you understand that forgiven forgiveness, you will be enabled by the Spirit to forgive other people. Now, we could preach a whole series of sermons on forgiveness. We could rake through every scripture, and, and that would have value. I think there's a lot of value in that. And I would encourage you, if you're struggling with forgiveness, to do exactly that, to go home today and begin to just look up every passage on forgiveness and read it and study it, meditate on it. We don't have all that time. So I want to give you a a carefully crafted definition for biblical forgiveness that I came across in a book. The book is called Unpacking Forgiveness. I've got a few copies back on the Next Steps table. If you're really struggling with forgiveness, I'd highly encourage you to grab that book. He does a fantastic job of just going through the biblical passages that talk about forgiveness, breaking it down, and then applying it into our lives. And so if this is, if this is a thing you're like, man, I've never understood this. I really struggled with forgiveness. Man, grab that book from the table. You can, I bought them so that you could take them. And you can take them if you read them. That's my deal. All right? Agreement? Okay. So I want to give credit where credit is due. This, this, comes from, this definition comes from that book. And a lot of the myths are either taken or, or uh, uh, adapted from that book. So credit where credit is due. I couldn't improve on it, so I just borrowed it. So forgiveness is this. A commitment by the offended to pardon graciously the repentant from moral liability and to be reconciled to that person, although not all consequences are necessarily eliminated. So it is a commitment by the offended. The person who has been offended, who has been sinned against, makes a commitment, a decision to commit, to forgive the person, to pardon the person graciously out of grace, right? So meaning it's a free gift. It doesn't, you're not exacting something from that person. You're giving it to the repentant. The person has to be repentant. You're pardoning them from moral liability for what they've done. And, and also you're agreeing to be reconciled to that person. There is a relational reconciliation to some degree that does happen, that is part of this process. Although that does not mean that all consequences are necessarily eliminated. There can be consequences for your sin. There can be protective boundaries that need to be put in place. It does not mean you're reconciled to a relationship exactly like it was before. In fact, I'd say it means that you won't be reconciled into a relationship exactly like it was before necessarily, but you will pursue reconciliation. So that's the definition. And I want to clarify it with some common myths. So here's, here's some myths that are common. Myth number one, forgiveness is primarily a feeling. The world will tell you forgiveness is primarily a feeling. Now you may cease to feel resentment. You may cease to feel bitterness towards the person after forgiving. And, and, and if that happens, thank God for it, Right? But there is no guarantee in the Bible for that. 
You may have reoccurrences of resentment because of your own indwelling sin, because you're imperfect and you need to repent yourself of it. You need to decide again today to continue to forgive that person. It's a decision. You may have to continually remind yourself, no, Cody, no, I have forgiven that person and I will act in such a way as I've forgiven that person. I will treat them in such a way as I've forgiven that person. Now, you may gain a desire to forgive someone, right? Here's the other side of that, of that feeling equation. You may gain a desire to forgive someone, but you may decide to forgive them because ultimately you know that that's what you ought to do and you want to do according to what God commands you, according to what God has done for you. And you may never have a feeling like, ooh, I want to, to forgive that person. That may never come in your whole life. I just want you to know that. That does not make it invalid. That does not make it inauthentic. Stop allowing your feelings to rule so much of what you do. Like I said, the heart thing, it's not a matter of feelings alone. It's a matter of will. I'm deciding. And feelings may come with that, but they may not. Sometimes you decide and you do it and the feelings come later. Okay? If I, as an example, if my wife asks me to, uh, hey, Saturday, K-State game's on. She says, hey, Cody, can you take out the trash? I'll tell you what, my feeling is I don't want to do that. All right? That's my feeling. But I may get up and do it because I love her. Does that... Does that make it inauthentic love? No. I would say it makes it even more authentic because I did it when I didn't want to, but I did it anyways because I love her. All right, where am I? Truth. Biblical forgiveness is a commitment, not a feeling about the one you are pardoning. Myth two, forgiveness can be a one-way street. I want you to know it takes two people to create debt and it takes two people to forgive debt. It's a commitment to the pardon. It's transactional. It is relational. That is what forgiveness is. It necessarily must involve the one pardoned and the pardoner. When God forgives someone in Christ, there is something real and true that happens in that person who is forgiven. They are saved. They are justified. So the truth here is that forgiveness must involve both parties. It is a two-way street. That being said, I do want you to understand that we can and we ought as Christians to have a heart that is gracious and ready to forgive as soon as that person is repentant. But if they are not repentant, you cannot biblically forgive them. And that, I think... It's probably one of those things that you go, wait a second. I thought I've heard it a different way, and you probably have. But I want you to understand, go back to the, this is, all, this is my challenge. Go back to the Bible, read what it says. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But go back to the Bible, read what it says. Does God ever forgive someone of their sins if they're not repentant? Ever. Ever, 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 a single time. Never. Never. 
And listen, when we do ask for forgiveness, <laughs> this is this is maybe this, this is like a this is a soapbox for me. But here I am. When you do ask for forgiveness, listen, there's a couple of things I want you to know. If you if you say like if someone stubs their toe and they're like, oh, I stubbed my toe, it hurts. And you say, oh, I'm sorry, because they hurt themselves. Then when you hurt them, don't say I'm sorry. Like, it's fine. Like, if you want to say I'm sorry in those situations, that's fine. That's a common usage. But when you hurt someone else, don't say I'm sorry to them if you say I'm sorry when they hurt themselves, because it has no meaning. Oh, you're, you're sorry like you're sorry when you didn't even do anything to me? Okay, let's, let's have our words actually portray the depth of meaning that we actually have. So this is what I would suggest to you. If you are asking for forgiveness, be specific about how you wronged that person. If I'm angry at my wife and I say some mean things, I don't go, hey, hon, I'm sorry I was uh, angry. No, I say, I'm sorry that in my anger I said this, this, this. And that was wrong. Declare that it was wrong. Make it clear that was a wrong thing. And then, will you forgive me? And here's why that's so important. Because when, when I do that with Amanda, if I say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm angry. And she walks away and she starts to think about, she goes, oh, that felt good in the moment. Like he said he was sorry, he was angry. And then she starts to think about the specific things that I said. And all the specific things I said. And she begins to wonder, okay, he was, he was sorry that he was like emotionally amped up, but is he actually sorry for these things that he actually did? And this, this stream of doubt seeps in that cuts away trust. And so I, this is just a Cody application, Cody advice. Be specific, say it's wrong, and then ask for forgiveness. Okay. Repentance is necessary for forgiveness. Myth four, I think that's where we're at. If you make someone feel bad, seek forgiveness. Look, look, if you make someone feel bad, you might need to seek forgiveness. You, you almost certainly need to seek them, right, to figure out what, what, what happened here. However, someone's feelings is not our standard of right and wrong. The Bible is our standard of right and wrong. And if we place our sense of justice, our sense of right and wrong in someone's feelings rather than the Bible, we already have undercut what forgiveness is. Because let me tell you, I read the Bible and there's a lot of things that Jesus says that don't feel good. But he's not asking for forgiveness for saying it because it's true and right. Okay, so you... People can feel bad when you do and say exactly the right thing in exactly the right way. That can happen. And if they're mad at you, then that is a sin in them, not a sin in you. That is a deficiency in them and not a deficiency in you. Now, that doesn't mean you just are standoffish. You don't care about them. You have that heart of graciousness. But true forgiveness is based solely in biblical justice. You can't legitimately forgive someone who hasn't broken God's standards. What's more, if you ask for forgiveness when you know that you haven't broken God's standards because you think it will just appease that person, then you have sinned, I would say. You're watering down what forgiveness is, and when you water it down between believers, we water down 
our understanding of what forgiveness is between God and us, of why it's necessary, of what the atonement is. So great example. I'll use my wife again. A few weeks ago, we were out, we were doing whatever we were doing. It's not really relevant to the story. At any rate, uh, I did, whatever I was doing, she felt really put out by it and felt really unloved by me. Now, now, certainly, I will admit, and I would be very quick to admit, that there are times when I am a jerk to her, okay, where I do not act in a loving way. I'll be the first to raise my hand on that. But this was one of those rare times when, actually, that's not what happened. Like, I was just doing. Nothing that, nothing that I did could actually be classified as sinful or wrong or unloving. So later on, when she had time to kind of think it through, she came to me and she said, hey, you know, I know, I know you didn't mean it this way. And, you, and, and you know, I don't, I don't think you did anything wrong, but I wanted you to know that this is how I felt in this moment. I wanted you to know that this is what I've been wrestling through since this situation happened. And she didn't expect me in that moment to ask for forgiveness. She wasn't begging that question right. And frankly, I wasn't going to say it because I didn't do anything wrong. However, if, if under the surface I did have a sinful motive, it would have given me the opportunity to go, you know what, actually, actually my heart was bad there. Thanks for coming to me graciously, but, but now you've actually put me in a position to admit that my heart was wrong in that moment rather than be defensive about it. But as it was, it did give me a chance to listen, and I, and I didn't inter- interrupt. I didn't say, whoa, 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 time out, but I didn't mean it. No, I let her talk, and I listened, and I cared. This as best as I can. And it gave us an opportunity to talk more about why she felt that way, about what were the things under the surface that were happening. It gave us an opportunity as a married couple to sanctify one another. In that instance, That wouldn't have happened if I would have just said, oh, I'm sorry, forgive me, flippantly. We would have just breezed over the top, and we would have never actually been able to have a conversation about what the deeper things were. I would have never understood the deeper things that are going on in her heart. See, Christians don't stop forgiving, but if someone hasn't sinned and someone isn't repentant, then then whatever we're doing when we say we're sorry in those situations is not forgiveness. Myth, last myth. If nothing else, forgive for your sake. Guys, this is, this is so ungospel. This is so anti-gospel. It is merely a therapeutic exercise. It's turning what Christ has done on the cross in the atonement and turning it into a therapeutic exercise. Now, now listen, when you forgive someone, you, you may stop carrying a bunch of weight that you're holding on to, and, and praise God, that's such a relief. Living a life where you're constantly keeping tabs on all the things that all the people have done to you and how much it hurt and how much you need to pay them back, that's pure exhaustion. It's no way to live. The Bible affirms that's no way to live. 
But there's a difference between the purpose and the byproduct, and it's a critical difference. If you're doing it, if you're, if you're asking forgiveness primarily for yourself, then you've missed the point of what forgiveness is and what leads a believer to forgive. Listen, Jesus, or Jesus says in the parable, should not you have had forgiveness on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? You see, we're motivated to forgive because of the forgiveness we've received. That is the primary motivation. Forgiveness is motivated by love of God. If God loves us so much that we, he would forgive us in Christ, if we've been forgiven this, this unpayable debt, then what is it to forgive someone else but a joyful reminder of his forgiveness for us? When that person hurts you, and they come to you and they say, I'm so sorry I did that. And you have the opportunity to forgive them. One, you should praise God for the Holy Spirit's work in their life. That's evidence of the Holy Spirit working in another believer. Second, you should praise God for the reminder that Christ has forgiven you even so much more. You should praise God for the opportunity to be to represent Christ to that person in that moment. Mm. I don't want to tell this story. Silas says yes. I'll give you one more example from my marriage because I think marriage is just a hotbed of this. first year I was married to Amanda. Um, well, there's not really any easy way to say it. Uh, she, she caught me looking at pornography. Just straight up. She saw it. I came home from work. I was walking into the living room. She walks up to me. And she says, what the heck is this? And what do you do? I mean, I could, I could try in that moment to talk around it. I could try to make up a reason why, you know, those websites were looked at or whatever. But the reality was the reality. And, and, and in truth, I, it had been eating me up. And so I just repented. I, I sought her forgiveness. It wrecked me. As I watched it wrecking her, as I could see it in her eyes, how painful that was, right? But, but here's, here's, here's what's amazing. I asked for forgiveness. Amanda forgave me. And never once in 15 years that it's been has she brought that up or used that against me in any way, shape, or form. It was done at that moment. There is, I don't know that there is a single thing that anyone, any human being has done in my life that has had a more profound impact and deepened my understanding of what God's grace is and what his forgiveness is in that moment right there. 
that when she said, I forgive you, she meant 100%, I forgive you. Now, there were consequences, right? Like, there were boundaries that I had to put up, ways that I had to, to make sure that, that that wasn't happening again. But, but that was it. When you have the opportunity to forgive someone, you have the opportunity to display the forgiveness of Christ in a tangible, palpable way to them. Don't miss that opportunity.